the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord. I'm James, and with me are my good friends, Mike and Brian. Brian, how are you today, my friend? Very happy to not be at work right now. Yes, amen to that. Mike, how are you, good sir? I am so sad I am not in the office at work right now. It is just, <laughs> just thrills my soul every time. No. Though, I mean, to be honest, there is one thing that has been actually really great about work, or at least uh, one dynamic, because I do have an office job, 9 to 5. I'm also clergy, and we actually had a clergy retreat this last week. And it was actually really amazing because uh, the denomination that I'm a part of is broken up into district. District superintendent watches over this region of the country. And he has, for the New England district, a retreat every year. And most district superintendents do. But his philosophy of the retreat is, okay, guys and gals, this is a place for you and your spouses to just come and and hang out, have an actual retreat. We'll have some services, but mostly what we have scheduled is a whole lot of free time. So enjoy each other. There's hiking trails. There's a water park. There's a lounge down there. Do whatever you want. And in the last several years, there's been a lot more gamers coming together in at the clergy retreats. Cool. Yeah, I think this time around we had like four or five people bring like totes or laundry baskets or just plastic containers of a whole bunch of games. And some of us actually coordinated with each other to make sure that we weren't overlapping or repeating. So kind of just sliding right into my geek out, I had some really great table time with some of the other clergy at the retreat. Now, what are some of the games that you took? Uh, I took a lot of games. Uh, Space Cadet Dice Duel. We took Soro. We took uh, Star Trek Five-Year Mission. We took Time Stories, Machi Koro, Bright Lights, Big City. So we tried to spread it out between some easy to just drop into, doesn't take much explanation of the rules, to uh, what are you guys doing for the next couple of hours? So, for example, Soro is a pretty easy, like, oh, you don't, you don't know any games, just come on in, we'll give you a hand, and we'll show you as we go around the table. And enough strategy to make it interesting, but you know, also not intimidating to new players. Very cool. I like that one because it's one that you can win by accident. <laughs> you know, or you can lose by paying the consequences of somebody else's poor choices. Mm-hmm. So like life. <laughs> now, did you get to play anything new? Uh, I actually got introduced to King Domino, which uh, my wife had talked quite a lot about. So I was, I had some image in my head as to what this was going to look like because she didn't tell me how the game was played. She just kept saying King Domino and how great it was. And I heard other people kind of chit-chat about it while they had an understanding of the rules and the dynamics. So it was great to actually get this game in front of me. Uh, have either of you heard about this game? I've never heard of it. Neither have I. I imagine it's like normal dominoes, except there's a crown involved. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, there is. And whoever is wearing the crown gets to swing the sword at their other opponents when they don't like what somebody's laid down. Oh, hot no. dog. I'm in. <laughs> right? The, Sounds like the great Domino. The, <laughs> <laughs> the name Domino in it really kind of made me not understand why this was going to be so great, but really the only aspect that is Domino-ish is the fact that, now let me start at the beginning. You are a king or queen, perhaps, of this uh, of this land, and what you're given is a single square that is your castle. And there are these tiles that you can draft, and on these tiles they have two other pieces of land. It might be swamp and desert or ocean and farmland. So you have these two sides, and you have to line these up on the land that you're already setting to maximize your your land yield, maximize your number of points, because some of these land pieces on the, I hate to call them dominoes, but kind of, have certain point values. And if you can compound those point values, uh, then at the end of the round, you get so many points. Uh, the only domino aspect is at least one of your land pieces has to match up with another land piece when you set the tile down. So imagine something like uh, you have Carcassonne pieces, except they're twice as long. And so you're just trying to get a match on one of those sides to complete, complete your landmass. And uh, the drafting mechanic is interesting enough to give a little bit of strategy. It makes you think ahead and trying to decide how you're going to, to play your, your longer game of trying to assemble uh, your maximized point value. Okay. Is this a game that you think you'll pick up eventually, or was it just fun the one time? I think this is something that I could pick up. My wife has a different feeling about this, which is, this is a game we're going to pick up. So <laughs> I can see myself playing this game in yeah, the future. I, I think you'll I definitely be picking it up then. Yeah, yeah. She, she will take the sword that comes in the box and say, this is, this is what is happening. No. <laughs> no, I think it's a good light game because it can play as easy as 15 minutes. So if you have something that you want to think a little about, but you're just too exhausted to put in a four-hour game, it has a good niche on the, on the gaming shelf, I think. Cool. But the things that I, were really, I was really excited to play uh, was uh, Star Trek's five-year mission. And I was so thrilled to be able to sit down with some good people to, to play that game. I think we've mentioned it once on the podcast before, but I don't think we've ever talked about it. Have, have you guys ever tried this game out? Uh, I've wanted to, either. but yeah, we, we did talk about it on an earlier episode. Oh, we did? Well, it's still good then. <laughs> <laughs> I so, think last yeah, time it have... was just a conversation. I want this game and I'm getting it soon. Have you heard of it? And we said, we've heard of it, but we haven't played it. And that's the extent of it. Yeah. Okay. It is, then I'll give you the quick rundown, because it is definitely worth playing. It's a Star Trek, you know, surprise, surprise, themed three to seven player co-op game. And so you and the other players take on roles on the Star Trek Enterprise. And you say, is this the Enterprise A or the Enterprise D? And I say, it's either. You can play an original series crew, or you can play a next generation crew. And there are some cards that you can slip in and out of the game to fit that theme. So each player has a character card with special abilities. Uh, Jordy has the ability to make uh, easy repairs to the Enterprise. 
Dr. Crusher has the ability to, to heal character injuries. Worf has the ability to, to look at people intimidating and grunt and talk about Klingon <laughs> culture and so forth. Play begins by revealing an alert card. And alerts are leveled with different levels of intensity. There's blue alert, yellow alert, and red alert, each relating to the difficulty of the mission that's going to be revealed on this card. And you have to roll certain dice combinations from a dice pool in order to resolve these missions. So you might need a blue die of this number or a red die of this number or any die of another number. And players go around uh, the circle uh, rolling their dice and placing their dice on these missions. Uh, the fun really begins when card effects come into play when you reveal new alerts or sometimes chain affecting different alerts. Like if you play a blue alert, that'll trigger another yellow alert, which will trigger a red alert, and they will have these card effects, such as Prime Directive, which is a alert that must be resolved before you complete any other missions. And if you resolve something else first, well, then your Prime Directive mission fails. There are critical missions where you have to pull out a sand timer, and now real time, you guys take your turns solving that alert. And if you don't solve it before the timer runs out, then you fail that mission. And perhaps the most intense is the communications disruption, which if that happens on the Enterprise, that's a big deal. And they kind of replicate that on the table by saying, no talking, no pointing, no gesturing. Players play your turns and work cooperatively by trying to think together. And so if you get a critical mission with a communications disruption, you're watching this timer go out while you're not able to talk about whose turn it is or what we're trying to do to solve which one of these first. And you're just trying to think ahead or think together on trying to solve these problems. And the features ramp up the tension at the table to make an otherwise simple dice rolling mechanic really an interesting cooperative game. But how many players does it take to get a, a game really going? I've really played well with four players. I've played with as few as three, and it's it does okay. And I, I don't think I've ever done anything as high as seven. But they say that you can go as high as seven. Okay. Now, unfortunately, while you were telling us about it, I was doing a quick look on Amazon. And uh, side note, I already added King Domino to my uh, wish list. <laughs> And it doesn't look like Star Trek Five-Year Mission is readily available now. It's hard to get. Mayfair Games had some trouble. And so they were bought out by a larger company, and now their properties are kind of shifting around. And uh, it's a great game. I'm really hoping for it to make a comeback. It was not terribly well available online even when I got it. But we were able to get it through through an Amazon seller, and some people are saying that they can still get it through their friendly local game stores. So these are not bad places to look. It's It, it would be a shame if it doesn't become more available because it's a really good co-op game. Cool. I'm going to have to look out for that one. Don't know if I'll find it, but I will look out for it, and it can join the other games in my game cabinet, which I desperately want to play but haven't had time to yet. <laughs> And speaking of Star Trek things, I did mention in a previous Geek Out that I had logged some complaints against Star Trek Outpost. Mm -hmm. And my question then was, so when does this pick up? When does this get good? Um, Star Trek Outpost Roundabouts Episode 10 is really getting interesting. 
Yeah, I would say that's about when they started hitting their stride. That's when they entered the uh, the second or third season of Star Trek, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to tell you right now, it still has a couple of hit and miss episodes, but I think just recently, yeah, not long ago, they uh, released episode 78. Oh, and just today they released episode 78A. And it's getting interesting right now because they're not really giving away a spoiler, but in the latest few episodes, they're ramping up to the Borg attack, the one that happened at Wolf 359 in the Star Trek episodes, Best of Both Worlds. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, I'm slowly making my way in that direction. I'm only in episode 12 or 13 right now, but um, I've been doing a lot more biking than I have been training lately and also listening to a couple of other podcasts. But Very cool. I'm going to get right back into it. Well, speaking of other podcasts, um, I want to say a quick thanks to Mike Perna at Inroads Ministries as I heard about another game we played incessantly during the pastor's retreat uh, called um, called Time Stories. And Time Stories, I first heard about it as it came up on Game Store Profits. And shortly after that, one of my friends said, hey, I have this game. I'm trying to decide what to bring over your house. And he kind of described Time Stories. And I said, yes, bring it. It sounds fascinating. After the retreat ended, my wife and I stayed an extra day. And this whole day, when we weren't eating or saying goodbye to other people, like from noon on, we were playing Time Stories. And it's also another cooperative game. It's narrative-based, and it uses a deck of cards to tell a visual story, and it uses a panoramic to lay out a choose-your-own-adventure sort of story. So you start out, you have four or five cards set out in front of you to show what your first scene looks like. And there's a short descriptor of what this room is. And you place your character tokens on the places in this panoramic that you want to visit. And each of you flips over this card and you read the description. And in the description, there's either a greater detail of what's going on, perhaps a close-up look of what's in the scene, or challenges, whether they be talking challenges, thinking challenges, or combat. And so it creates this wonderful type of story dynamic where some of you are, are looking at and seeing things that you then can't show the card to other people but have to describe that to other people. So suppose you are at a location panoramic and you see in one scene there's four cards of a day room. One shows a nurse, a crazy guy in the corner, somebody making a painting, etc. One of you might go to the girl who's painting the painting, and you can flip the card over and you only see the painting in more detail. And it has a bunch of just junk on it, but it also has clues to following the broader narrative. It's up to that individual to discern what's junk and what's going to pertain to the future narrative and then describe that painting to others rather than showing it. So there is a light role-playing mechanic involved. And um, it is something that you can't complete the mission on the first play through. So you're going to be going back and doing it over and over and over again, three to four times is what a lot of people are saying. So you get a lot of play value out of that one story deck. It comes with the asylum, and that story has a just wonderful combination of skill challenges, real-life puzzle-solving, 
combat mechanics and it created such a fantastic narrative that was just a joy to play through over and over again until we completed it and then we even went back and played it again a couple more times just to explore some stones that we hadn't overturned in our first few playthroughs you know every time we talk about games on this podcast i end up adding at least two or three more to my list that i want to buy and (laughs) this one just might hit the top because everything you've talked about it, how it's very narrative and its style, small amounts of role-playing elements, that is right in my wheelhouse. That's how I like to GM when I do run games, and it sounds like a lot of fun. This is a great thing to to play when you're trying to test the waters in terms of whether somebody wants to make that jump into role-playing, because it has some role-playing features, but it's not heavy role-playing. The Asylum, the one it comes with, has some darker images. So you're playing as characters since, okay, I guess I should step back. The meta is that you're these time travelers who need to solve these temporal problems or prevent temporal crimes. And so you have to put your consciousness into these people, which they so lovingly call receptacles, that are in the (laughs) scenario already. So you're basically beaming your consciousness into a patient in an insane asylum in the 1920s. So these are problematic characters with some dark themes. And one player, I mean, his his superpower is pretty much cocaine. Wait, so, that's his superpower? <laughs> that's his superpower. He takes a hit of cocaine. He can add an additional die to any of his rolls. Sounds like unknown armies. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing I noticed about this game by perusing it on Amazon is that there are a ton of very moderately priced expansions. There kind of better be, because once you've played through the Asylum eight times and you've left no stone unturned, then you kind of have this game that you know all the secrets to. You've solved every puzzle. There's no more challenge left. So once you play through your deck and you've played it to death, then it would be nice to move on to something else. And... They have expansions ready for exactly that. I want to read some of the expansions because the names of these are drawing me in even more. There's the Marcy Case, which takes place in the early 1990s. Uh, Lumen Fide takes place in the early 15th century. Uh, Estrella Drive, based on what looks like early Hollywood. A Prophecy of Dragons, which is 7553 AD. There's a pirate one and more. Yeah, uh, we got the Marcy case, and we're planning on playing that over Thanksgiving, so I can check in and let people know what that one's like. Cool. And that's pretty much my geek out. Mostly games at Clergy Retreat. Well, Brian, would you like to go next, or shall I? I'll go. So a few days ago, or a couple weeks, or whatever, you asked on our chat channel about the Gormenghast trilogy uh, by Mervyn Peake. And at that time, I hadn't read it, but it had been kind of on the edges of books that I was aware of for a while, so I decided, eh, it's old, it's cheap, I'll give that a try. And uh, to express what this book is like, I'm going to offer you a recipe. So this is the Gourmandgast smoothie. <laughs> Take seven princes in amber, chopped fine, add a shredded deck of the card game Gloom, blend until smooth, add a little bit of Lewis Carroll... And then sprinkle a shredded 1850s thesaurus over the top. Oh my gosh. It sounds very high in fiber, but I can't comment on the taste. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting book. As you know, I tend to read as I walk to work, and this book is so dense and so unusual that I can't walk and read it at the same time. I keep tripping over you things. You just fall over. Yeah. He, so, just, uh, he, he just keeps going, and he ends up walking into the uh, into the ocean. I'd never make it that far because it's like, wait, what is that word? How did these fit together? I, What am I reading? And so I just kind of stop while I'm processing. I still don't know exactly how I feel about it. I'm almost done with the first book. I guess I'll read the second one and try and figure it out from there. I'd be interested to hear how that uh, how that review comes out in the end because it sounds like you've got a really interesting mix of of flavors going into your smoothie, but how it comes out in the end is probably uh, probably going to be a deciding factor. Right, it might turn out to be a purgative. <laughs> <laughs> kind of as a consequence of not being able to read while I'm walking is I've had to find another way to fill my time as I walk to work. So taking my cue from Last time or the time before when we talked about audio fiction and podcasts and so forth, I uh, got a pair of earbuds and I started listening to some podcasts on my way to work. I caught up to the end of Voyager on that Beginning the Trek podcast that my ex-wife was running. And I've also been listening to Saving the Game, which I went all the way back to the beginning for that one. So I've got like 120 or something episodes of that to listen to. It'll take me quite a while. Oh, I bet. But I've never really listened to podcasts before. I have a hard time just sitting down and listening to something. I don't know. I'm pretty good at reading or watching a video or a movie, but just listening doesn't doesn't work for me very well. So that's something that I've never really done before. See, I just can't master the whole reading while you walk. Otherwise, I'd probably do pretty well on it because I, <laughs> I listen mostly to podcasts when I'm walking to and from on the train. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I I tend to read while I'm on the train, and I do neither while I'm biking to work, because biking in Boston is dangerous enough. Right. I have to make a, well, I work a split shift right now, so I get the joy of driving to work twice a day. Yay. Yeah, so, and it's not a bad drive, depending on what traffic is like in the time of day. It's usually only a 15 to 20 minute affair, but it makes for some good podcast time. So let's see, Gorman Gast, Saving the Game, and on the video game front, I am still playing Civilization VI. After 25 years of playing Civilization games, I finally won one on the highest level. Nice. Nice. <laughs> it's like the, the difficulty level gets exponentially greater as you go up, and it's not because the game is, like the computer doesn't get any better playing it, it's just they give the computer so many advantages that it's almost impossible to overcome. Okay, I start with a settler and a warrior. The computer gets four settlers and like three warriors and a few spearmen. And every time you get in a fight with it, it gets a plus 10 bonus. And so it's really heavily stacked against the player in the higher levels. And it's been literally 25 years when I finally got that deity win. Yes, I wow. saw. You. I remember your post on the Geek and Arms Facebook page. The godlike win a regular game at deity difficulty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that, and now I understand it. So, hooray! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so now having accomplished that, I am still playing. That's the mark of a good game. That's yeah, a terribly addictive game. And I've been putting off things like grocery shopping and laundry 
in favor of playing Civilization. So I'm turning my socks inside out and searching my pantry for Kansas soup. So basically, it's only really bad when you're trying to grow your own produce from the soil that is on your own clothes. So that's you know, if you haven't hit that, <laughs> I'm not there yet. So basically, you're saying the game has turned back the clock, and you're back in your college days. Mm, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Have you had to resort to ramen yet? I don't know that I've resorted to ramen. I have enjoyed some ramen from time to time just because sometimes some junk food like that is good. Fair enough. Cut up some hot dogs in it. Hey, yeah. Come on. If you cut, if you have like leftover chicken and some fresh broccoli and, you know, maybe some peppers and I don't know, maybe even a little bit of curry powder and just load it down with enough frozen veggies, you can actually pretend it's good for you. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see the broccoli and the peppers are those things that you require to go to the grocery store to get. I ate all oh, of those yeah. three weeks ago. <laughs> okay, on Probably a more than three weeks. On a side note, we have had a ramen place open up in our town, nicely named Ramen Joy, and uh, <laughs> my wife Joy oh my and God. I went to go check it out. And for ten bucks, you get an enormous bowl of food. I mean, it was just yeah, like three huge. Meal. Yes, if I ate a bowl of cereal using this bowl, they'd have to cut my foot off. <laughs> yeah, just the diabetes, just yes. that much sugar. Yeah. I wasn't complaining one bit because it may have been a lot of food, but it was delicious. Yeah, we got and a few of, of those places a, around here. There's a huge difference between actual ramen and the maruchan or top ramen that you get in a little packet. Mm-hmm. Because one of those is food and the other one is not. Just please tell me that you haven't. One thing I remember about dorm life was that I would have just come back from lunch or dinner at the cafeteria and more than a few times, I'd see one of my hallmates walking down the hall with ramen in his hand. Not a bowl of freshly heated up ramen. Just, it's oh, no. it's still, and it's... Just eating it crunchy? Just eating it crunchy. It's still in bar form. He just took off the plastic. Maybe he seasoned it with the little packet. Yeah, what do you do? Just, like, sprinkle it on there? Yes. That's exactly what he did. <laughs> just crunching on it. And I'm like, no, no. You're doing no. that wrong. <laughs> yes. That's like all of the MSG and none of the hydration. So, <laughs> And I, I, I wanted to tell him, we have a meal plan. The cafeteria is not that far. Go. I have a meal plan, too. This is my meal. This is my plan. <laughs> and it's a bad plan, and you should feel bad for doing it. <laughs> no, I have not resorted to eating the ramen. Is it, that's not raw. It's... <laughs> I don't know what the term for that is. Wrong. Uncooked. Wrong. Wrong. Yes. Good, good. I don't have to coordinate a intervention then. Yes. I actually do have a stove now that heats things up. Ooh, nice. Unlike my previous stove that took like an hour to boil water. Ooh. <laughs> See, if I had known that, I would have sent you one of those camping espit stoves with the... You know, I thought about getting one of those. Yeah? Actually, I, I was looking at a portable induction stovetop okay yeah there you go but i never did that instead i just moved yeah <laughs> that makes that simple right Take the easy way out brian <laughs> let's see i could buy this thing for 120 dollars uh, that's kind of steep i'll pay 500 dollars a month so i can have a kitchen <laughs> my financial brain is not the most sophisticated i would i would have gone with column a but whatever <laughs> but now i also have a parking space for Five hundred dollars oh. a month. 
Nice. Ooh. For the car that you drive once a month. If that. Once a leap year. I keep having to charge my battery because it keeps discharging. <laughs> the car never goes anywhere. <laughs> it's just the the power necessary to turn on the little LED lights on the dashboard drains the battery completely down. Gotcha. Jeez. Wow. I mean, although good for you that you've gotten that that car usage down that low. Yes, it's very nice to not have to drive places, although now when I do have to drive, it's much more stressful. I went into work on a Saturday, and I my foot was hurting, so I drove. And it's like, I got there, and I've... I've only been in the car for 10 minutes, and the fact that it took me 10 minutes to drove only two miles, well, and I'm already so stressed out, way more so than if I had just walked on my bad foot. Why is everyone honking at me? Why is it? Oh, oh yes, blinkers. (laughs) I mean, that long to go two miles, I mean, during certain times of the day, it's about a mile and a half from here to the church. And it could take 20, 30 minutes. So one time it took us three hours to go 11 miles. Ooh. Yep, L.A. can get like That's... that. And if it, would, if it had been rush hour, fine. But it was a Saturday morning. There was no excuse for those people to be on the road, really. <laughs> right. Except that it's Hollywood and, eh. It shut down all of the roads for a movie shoot. Well, actually, they do that. And they've got the, the Hollywood Bowl, the open-air theater concert hall thing. Uh, amphitheater and whenever there's a concert there the traffic just gets kind of nuts and so los angeles had this brilliant idea we're going to try and channel the the traffic into the places where we wanted to go and keep things moving faster and we're going to do this by closing some streets oh. <laughs> but they I don't think that's gonna the going to work the way you way. want yeah they closed down the one-way streets leading to those places that people most wanted to go. Yeah, it, it was it was bad. Even for the pedestrian, I almost got run over several times just because people were so upset and impatient. Anyway, so, Civilization Six, And that's all I had to say about that. Gotcha. James, what are you geeking about? How about, about? you, James? Well, um, I've gotten back into something that I have not done in a long time. I was surfing through videos on YouTube, and one popped up on my feed of the actor uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who has been in the TV show Third Rock from the Sun, Inception, and many more. Good actor. I like him a lot. Um, He was in the last Batman movie uh, that had Christian Bale in it. It had him being interviewed on the YouTube channel Geek and Sundry. He brought his Magic the Gathering collection with him. And it wasn't that they had cards for him and taught him how to play. No, he had his cards, his binder, his box, and his ready-made decks there ready to go. And he ended up playing a round of magic with the young lady who was interviewing him. And I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. And that what led color me... did he use? Oh, gosh, I don't remember. And the reason I don't remember is because that led me to another of Geek and Sundry's shows which is called Spell Slingers with the host Sean Day9. And it's where he invites geeky friends of his or other people in the business to come and play Magic the Gathering. He's had quite the interesting collection of people. I think the show is in its fifth or sixth season, and they're short seasons. But he's had Felicia Day, Alan Tudyk, John Hedder, who uh, was Napoleon Dynamite, 
He had Janet Varney, who was the voice of Korra in the The Legend of Korra cartoon series. He's had Grant Imahara and many more. It's been a lot of fun to watch, and it's really gotten me kind of like thinking about magic again. Game that I, I like, that Brian is the one who got me into it, and for his own purely selfish reasons. And <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and it's got me hungry to play again. And so I went to the game store and I picked up a couple of packs. So it begins again. So it begins again. They recently released a new Ravnica series just this year, and that's one that I've enjoyed playing uh, with Brian and others. And Brian knows me. He knows my playing style and, and the colors that I like to go with. I'm usually... A, James some, is a crusader. He yeah. likes fire and the sword. Yeah. I do some version of a white deck, whether it's mono-white, white and red, sometimes white and green. So, of course, the first two packs I pick up in years, and the rares are both blue-black. <laughs> That's the way of things. Yeah. They're pretty cool, though. They are unique, and I do like them. One of them is called Etrata the Silencer, which is a legendary creature vampire assassin. The other one is actually very cool. It's called Lazav the Multifarious, and it is a mythic rare, a legendary creature shapeshifter. That is one I would actually consider building a blue-black deck around. So I've been watching a lot of Spell Slingers. I recommend either one of you two give it a watch. If nothing else, it'll provide you 20 minutes of humor. I've seen a few episodes of that one in the past. Oh, I haven't cool. watched it in quite some time, though. It's interesting because it did lead me to another realization that you know how you watch a YouTube video and it has suggestions for other videos on the right-hand side? Mm -hmm. Well, there was a link to a story about a gentleman who was a top-tier Magic the Gathering tournament player who was recently put on suspension for cheating during a final of a large game. And, yeah, I mean, he did it on camera. So and that led me to another video about cheating and about a style of cheating called mana weaving. And for those who are not very familiar with Magic the Gathering, is that you've got a deck of usually 60 cards, and you've got your cards, which are like spells, which they're creatures or they're other things, artifacts. But to play them, you have to have mana or land cards because each card has a mana or land cost to play it. And so usually you'll want a, a good amount of mana in your deck, but you also want to balance out however many cards you have of the different colors. Well, mana weaving is where you stack your deck. It's not random anymore. You shuffle, you shuffle, you shuffle. You get what comes out on top. You draw seven cards, and that's what you get. Mana weaving is where you're stacking it to where you're getting a consistent number of spell cards and mana cards with every single draw. It takes the fairness out of the game, because if you're doing it, your opponent is not then it makes it decidedly one-sided. They just have to find a way to stack the deck to make sure that it's non-randomized? People who do it will usually do it to people who are new to Magic or aren't very experienced with it. Because people who have been around for a while know that, uh, no, that's not cool. That's uh, that You're not supposed to do that. Everything's supposed to be random. That's the rule. Was that your question? It's not so much that you're getting specific cards, but that the proportion of the land to the spells has been prearranged so that you never have a situation where you draw four lands in a row or no lands. Or like every, um, all the cards in your hand cost four lands or more, but you've only drawn two. Aren't you shuffling right in front of your opponent? Or Well, if you're a skilled enough shuffler, 
and you can get it so that exactly left card, right card, left card, right card, and they exactly interleave, then you can still control, even if you're cutting at a different place each time, you're still controlling the proportion of the lands versus the spells. So you're not getting the exact cards you want, but you're getting the type of cards that you need in the right proportion. Gotcha. I'm on board. So I bring it up because I didn't realize it at the time, but I had an opponent do that to me at a pre-release tournament I was at in Colorado. Uh, I believe it was the pre-release tourney for the Innistrad. Pre-release tournaments where you go, you sign up, pay money, you get a deck, and you get to play that deck against other people in four rounds. And if you get a certain amount of wins, then you walk home with more packs. So I was against this one guy who had his cards in front of him, and he was stacking them into four piles. And I didn't realize what he was doing at the time. I felt like something was fishy because I saw him making sure that, you know, spell card, spell card, land card, spell card, spell card, land card. I should have said something to one of the referees. Should have raised my hand. I should have called him over, but I didn't because I didn't know what he was doing. And I didn't want to make an accusation just because of a weird feeling. I should have just right. gotten over my feeling and brought it up to one of the judges because he beat me in both matches. And it was because he had consistent spell cards and land to play it coming with every single draw. Mm. So it kind of made me angry that I let somebody cheat me so easily. But, you know, live and learn. See, the only time that I was in a tournament and had something I really did not feel good about is uh, it was a Yu-Gi-Oh tournament. Say what you want. We were playing Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, my wife and I, pretty pretty consistently. No judgment oh. here. Yeah. All right. Uh, when we first moved to, to Kansas. And, heck, you know, we weren't great at the game, but at least going to tournaments, it was a great way to meet new people when, you know, you don't know anybody else in an area. So we picked up some packs and a deck and started to play. Well, one time when I was in the middle of this tournament, uh, my opponent in between rounds gets up and leaves the table. And I pick up my drink and I, I take a sip and I realize instantly, oh my gosh, I picked up this guy's drink. And so I set it back down. He comes back and I say, look, I'm sorry. You know, I took a drink of your drink. And he looks at the Dr. Pepper can sitting there. He's like, that's not mine. I don't know whose that is. And I super <laughs> did not feel good about the fact that I just got complete stranger backwash, like not even a face to attach to that spit. And uh, it was Okay, yeah, that was a different kind of bad feeling. Okay, it's, yeah, sorry. It's It still haunts his dreams, Brian. We don't understand. It still haunts him daily. Something has intermingled with me, and I don't understand what it is. I feel changed. See, I want to meet... Speaking of Innistrad. Yeah, seriously. I want to meet the mic before the mystery Dr. Pepper backwash. You know, um, he was a self-doubting gangly kind of scrawny looking guy and not not the changed beast that you see before you with all the oh wait no i guess that's <laughs> not so that has led me to have a renewed interest in magic unfortunately my primary magic fellow enthusiast and opponent is living on the west coast i promise i'll bring a couple decks with me for christmas good and or we could just play on the air i mean just tell us what you drew you're on your honor I know that that Black Lotus was definitely in your deck before. <laughs> I, I, to afford one of those, I would literally have to sell one of my children. 
Uh, it was recently, one recently went for about 8000 A game store here in the Boston area, heck, I'll say it, Pandemonium Books and Games. I love those guys. And they were able to pick one up, and it was, they paid 8000 Wow. Now, is it on now display there, on for sale, or is it just like, look what we got, you may look at it, but don't touch it? It was an initial, like, hey, everybody, look, we got this big, big deal. It is not staying at the store long at all. No. And they were not planning on turning it over for a cash profit. What they were hoping to do is to get a butt ton of trades for that one card. And so they would be able to have smaller high-value cards that they could turn over more quickly because – Let's be honest, in order to make profit on $8,000 worth of card, you're going to have to hang on to that for a good long while to make it worth your while if you want mm-hmm. it as a single purchase. Fair. But you break it up into smaller purchases, and there's a better chance of making your money back sooner. Yeah. And the thing about it is, the card isn't really worth anything unless you play with it. Yeah. Its value is based on its excessive power. Yeah, it's funny because when you talk about value about any of these customizable or trading card, any really random draft piece in a game, I will see on communities all the time when people come up and say, I have this, what is it worth? And that question is an entirely subjective question Mm -hmm. because, you know, whatever amount of cash you are willing to receive to part with it, that is its value to you. Whatever somebody is willing to shell out for it is its value to them. And people will say, well, this collecting site has it listed for $40. I'm like, that sounds great. Um, Anybody willing to pay $40 for it? No. No takers? Okay. Well, then I hope you feel comfortable with that number because no one's going to give you that much money for it. I still have some cards left over from uh, Middle Earth the Wizards. I have the one ring. Wow. It is absolutely valueless because <laughs> nobody plays that game. <laughs> I should look that up, find out actually what that value is. It might be worth a better stove. If only you can find somebody who is willing to pay you a stove for it. I think that if he found someone who would be willing to put out stove money, he'd be more excited about finding someone who would also play with him. <laughs> right. So uh, beyond magic, a couple of other things I've been geeking out to recently. I got into a new woodworking project. With us heading into the holiday season, our local SCA group is having an upcoming Yule event. And at Yule, they're hosting a largesse competition. Largesse being things that those in royalty, king, queen, prince, princess, baron, and baroness, can give out to populace or in gift baskets to those who win tournaments. And uh, the theme is quality over quantity this time. Usually when they host largesse tournaments, they're asking for eight or ten of something. I won a big largest competition in the past. I churned out 12 small waxed writing tablets. That's because the the lady who was about to become queen was a good friend, and I wanted her to have something cool to to hand out. This time, I'm I'm being ambitious, but not as ambitious as that. Uh, Something I've been doing a lot of research into is Viking combs. They can be very intricate. They can be made from a multitude of materials, a horn, bone, wood, and I decided that I would try to make three nice carved 
Viking Homes. Well, I hope with things of that quality that you are able to uh, turn the Yule Tide in this tournament. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> I've done a lot of research on them, both of recreations and those that exist in museums. And I was able to find some nice slats of wood that were somewhere between a quarter to a third of an inch thick, which is right where I want it to be. So I picked up a couple of pieces of a cherry, walnut, and some wood that I had left over from an earlier project of burled oak. As I was cutting the wood up, I'm like, you know what? I'll make the first three nice and carved and with, with more detail. And then I'll hammer out a few more just to uh, give away to people. Just as Yule gifts to people who I think are cool. And I must say, so far, the most time-consuming part of the project hasn't been the decorative part. It's been hand-sawing the teeth of the comb. Oh. That has been a yeah. pain. <laughs> Now, I would not have the manual dexterity for that. Well, and it's been very stressful. Now, I've seen people do it. There's a YouTube video of one gentleman making a Viking comb, and he cut the teeth with a bandsaw, and which was... Well, that's cheating. Yeah. I don't have a bandsaw. I can't afford one right now. I'd love to have one for many reasons, but it's not in the cards. So I had to take a... I've got a couple of different saws, and I found the one that worked the best for getting the, the thinnest cut was a coping saw. It's got a very thin blade, but because it has such a thin, small blade, it's very easy to go off track with it. So not only did it take a while to cut right, the teeth. It kind of twist. Yes, exactly. I also was going very slow to stay on the line that I drew. I've tried a couple of other saws. The coping saw gives me the, the thinnest cut, but I don't know. I'm still experimenting. And after that, you know, I pull out the sander to uh, thin the teeth out. And there are a couple of other processes I won't go through to uh, not to make it longer or bore people, but it's working out really well. And once I get some finished products, I'll post them on the Facebook page. Yeah, it sounds interesting. I mean, I couldn't possibly do that myself, but I'm interested in seeing how that comes up for you. People's reactions will be either one, people who are historically minded, like things like that, and go, oh, very cool, a Viking comb. Others will look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a comb there. <laughs> yeah, I got one just like it. 99 cents from Walmart. It's not the same. That way, you, I mean, come on. Who doesn't want to be like Thor and Oakenbeard by combing their, their manly <laughs> face fur with that? That should have been his name. <laughs> Tolkien was wrong. <laughs> it should have been Thor and Oakenbeard. I'm not going to be able to watch The Hobbit the same now. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I'll more likely read the book before I watch the movies again. But now I'm going to read Thor and Oaken beard, and he's just going to have this massively epic black beard with little ornaments and beads and a couple of combs stuck in it. <laughs> Maybe a bird, okay. too. I don't know. I think this is all something to aspire to. Really, doesn't it? Well, the last thing I've been geeking out to is about a month ago, the local half price bookstores had a warehouse clearance sale. I never really thought about how many books a Half-price bookstores must buy every single day, but they buy a lot. And at a at a large venue in Dallas, they were hosting a warehouse clearance sale. Everything in there, $2. So we put the kids in the stroller, and we went and got some good stuff. Some of it was things that we'll give out for Christmas. I found a book that I was very excited about. I looked for things of a medieval nature because those are the types of books I like to get. Uh, nothing was organized. There was a children's section. There was a fiction section, nonfiction section. That was really about it. 
but I found one just as we were getting ready to leave called The Last Duel, a true story of crime, scandal, and trial by combat in medieval France. Ooh, mm-hmm. no, that sounds interesting. Takes place in the late 14th century about a pair of French noblemen who, of course, over a lady, had one of the final trial by combats in history. And I've been finding it very fascinating reading. And for only two bucks, yeah, spot on. And that will wrap it up for my geek out. And that will take us to our discussion of the latest movie in our film club series, the Ridley Scott movie Blade Runner. Before we really get into Blade Runner, I guess we have to ask the question of which one? Not, you know, old versus new, but of the old, there's several cuts, aren't there? There's the theatrical cut. There's, the, there's actually seven different cuts. The most popular, you know, of course, the director's cut, the final cut. But there's also the crew cut, uppercut, and my favorite, <laughs> the Manfredo Pendante. Well, there's only three that you can actually still watch easily. The original, original theatrical release, the director's cut, and the final cut. Now, I found one called, I don't know what cut it is, but it was called, uh, I Can't Believe It's Not Blade Runner. So, <laughs> I wasn't sure this is the actual movie I was supposed to see, but it, yeah, I it think had that's its the one we agreed on. Yes. Right? <laughs> I ended up watching the final cut, because on Amazon, where we rent most of our movies these days, it had the theatrical release and the final cut. So, I decided to go with that one. Yeah, I own the final cut. Well, and I actually watched both the final cut and the theatrical release. And the one that I have watched the most often was the director's cut. I used to have that on VHS. I kind of wanted to get a a broader view of what the movie was and what it has become. I have watched all three of them, so if you're interested in a comparison and contrast, I can provide that. Is it a major type of contrast between the three, or is it just minor changes, a little add here and there? The difference between the director's cut and the final cut is mostly visual. Okay. Uh, they retimed some scenes. Uh, timing is a technical term for just changing the color. Okay. They call it color timing. And they added some visual effects, like some sky matte paintings and that kind of thing. Because when you say timing, my first thought was pacing, and there were more than a couple of scenes that needed work on the pacing. <laughs> but anyway, continue, please. And the difference between the theatrical cut and the other two is pretty significant because... Back in 1982, the studio interfered quite a lot with the movie. They thought that the investigation was confusing. They are correct. (laughs) Um, So they had inserted some voiceovers of Deckard explaining what was going on a little bit. Um, Oh, that never is the mark of a good movie when you have to sit there and explain what you're doing. Well, it's one of those cases that... You like to talk about, Mike, where the subtext was becoming text. Yeah. Um, and instead of letting Ford, you know, show us with his face what he's feeling, he says, and my wife left me. She said I was a cold fish. Okay, well, we didn't oh. really need that. They could have done this in a better way. And they also added a scene at the end to make it a happy ending of Deckard and Rachel driving off into the sunset so we know that they're okay, that I think weakened things. Um, But I I can see how some American audiences would not have been happy with the ambiguity that's at the ending of the director's cut. 
We do like our happy endings, though. We do. Well, we used to more in the 80s than we do now. Yes. Well, I think on this podcast, though, we have tended to like ambiguous endings. I mean, we tend to talk about and like the ambiguity in the films that we've talked about because we have, well, is he a replicant? Do they get away? Are they happily ever after? Do they die 15 minutes after the cameras stop rolling? I think these are the things that we talk about and that we tend to treasure in the films, but Mm -hmm. I guess we're not typical Americans now, are we? (laughs) Well, we're having a conversation about the movie, so we kind of need something to have conversation about. Yeah. If it's tied up in a bow for you, it might be more emotionally satisfying to some people, but it's not as easy to have a conversation about. So getting this conversation going first, I mean, you mentioned the visual. Anything strike you about this this film uh, visually as we replay it in 2018? Well, interesting you should mention 2018, because uh, visually, the first scene that we see is of L.A. in November of 2019. So we're a year away from this movie. And you see a mega, megaopolis, Los Angeles, fires coming out of refineries, a smog so thick you can't even see daylight. And I was thinking, that's probably how it looks right now. It actually does kind of resemble that right now with the fires. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of bad and, and yeah. scary. For those of you that are listening to this podcast, probably some years down the line trying to get the context of this, The fires in California are currently raging pretty much all over the place. And the the smoke, if I understand properly, is covering just about almost the entire state. The particulate is present throughout the entire state. It doesn't actually look like smoke. You don't look up in the sky and see, you know, red skies of smoke. But the particulate count is very high. Can you smell Uh, the burning wood in the air? Yeah. The other day at work, we were starting to smell wood smoke. And we were just assuming, you know, oh, people are starting up their fireplaces, it's chimneys. I'm like, no, wait a minute, we're in the middle of Hollywood. There's no people with chimneys around here. <laughs> we're, yeah. We're smelling the, the wildfires. Well, pulling this back to the representation in film, I think that's really one of the things that allowed for such interesting visual skylines is that you have, I mean, what are obviously sets that are done in miniature, and you can put this film together in such a way that it isn't obvious that you're rolling over a miniature. You've got so many layers of smog that it really kind of obscures the details of exactly what you have. So much so that you have to have somebody point out the Millennium Falcon that is in the skyline. Mm-hmm. Um, I missed that I, one. Yeah, it's there. You can look it up. But uh, it actually, I think, made the skyline more interesting because you couldn't entirely see what was going on. It leaves something to the imagination and makes it feel a little grittier. Yes. Yeah, that's something that I was given some advice when I was in film school, that if you want to raise the production value of your show, you want to make it look expensive, put some water on the floor. If there's reflections, if it's if it's wet, it looks more expensive. And they did that a lot in this movie, you know. Yes. The did. ground was always wet. Always wet, always fog, always raining. And considering all of the extras that they had in this movie to give you the feeling of this being a overpacked city, they must have been miserable. (laughs) Well, extras are always miserable. It's part of the job. Yeah, that's a good point. One thing I found interesting was aesthetically, both in the the design of some of the buildings, the design of the interiors, uh, the Tyrell building, the inside of Decker's apartment. 
You could tell that Ridley Scott was still borrowing or was still in his alien mindset because there were several times when looking at this, I'm thinking, uh, shouldn't there be an alien popping out of the wall about right now? <laughs> of course, he had made that movie just three years earlier. Well, and the the production designer and concept artist, Sid Mead, mm-hmm. uh, did both of those movies. And I, also I, Tron. I kept expecting to see like a Wayland yutani building somewhere. I think there actually is a Wayland yutani building in there somewhere. Nice. There was some kind of connection between the two universes. Makes sense to me. Well, you've got artificial humanoids in both of them. Putting them together isn't that much of a stretch. Uh, but speaking of the set design, I thought that, that the Tyrell building, that, that huge, huge building, I actually found that to be breathtaking. Mm-hmm. I thought that was one of the most well-designed, semi-dystopic, futuristic buildings that I've ever seen. I thought it was very well done. It really brought me in. And the fact that it was made in, or designed in the late 70s, early 80s, I thought made it even better. Like, for the vast majority of this movie, I completely forgot that it came out in 1982. Mm-hmm. There's so much of it that still feels very current for some indescribable reason. Yeah. Every once in a while, there'd be a set piece like the televisions or the little computers or the cars <laughs> or the ad placement, which would bring me back that this was a 1980s movie. But so much of it had the design, the look, and the feel of, of a movie that may have come out in the last decade. Well, and a lot of actual real-world user interface design borrowed a lot from Blade Runner. Those blues and greens, in terms of the color choices, have continued to interface user interface design for decades afterward. I think the other reason why it felt like something that could have come out more recently was it got me thinking about how many movies since Blade Runner have borrowed from it. Mm -hmm. A lot. (laughs) I mean, I was thinking about Beyond the Alien movies, which probably borrowed more from it beyond just the first one, which Ridley Scott did, but... There was many street scenes where it was mixing American and Asian culture and writing. I'm thinking, gosh, this looks like a scene out of a really high-budget episode of Firefly. Or when you're looking at just the expanse of the cityscapes, I mean, I, I can't help but think that George Lucas probably just cleaned that up quite a bit in order mm-hmm. to get Coruscant. Yeah. Star Wars, Firefly, several of the cityscapes. Also, my first thought was Fifth Element. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. And, I mean, we could probably name many, many more, but those are just the ones I wrote down on my list. But it does make it a, a timeless piece. I'm hesitant to use that. A lot of people like to use, oh, it's a timeless movie. Well, is it? Is it really? <laughs> but well, We're talking about it this far after the fact, and maybe it's got yeah. some good elements. Exactly. But one of the things that struck me, if you don't mind me jumping into something that is plot or character motivated, is what made this a villain so compelling or these replicants such interesting figures is that really their quest is an essentially human struggle what roy really wants is to confront his maker and and he tells them i want more life and i think one of the things that makes the response to that so fascinating is that is that tyrell doesn't say oh yeah do you know what i'll just give you longer life but he, he says, well, I can't solve that problem, but you do have a life more abundant. He says that you have a light that burns twice as bright and lasts only half as long. 
that what you have is a quality of life that far exceeds any human experience. So, yeah, you have more life. You mm -hmm. have it more now above and beyond human expectation. And I think the character, while he wants more life, he realizes that as well because at the end he says one of the best and most well-delivered lines I have ever heard in science fiction. The teardrops in the rain speech? I have seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I've watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. And I love that line for multiple reasons. One, because it does show that he realizes, I have led a life that, while he's done dubious things, he's done extraordinary things. And it also alludes to a much, much larger world that we don't see in this movie. Well, I think that's one of the things about well-written science fiction is that it alludes to more than it shows or more than it explains. If you feel the need to explain every last thing that you do, then really you've got a science fiction role-playing source book. Yeah, and let's face <laughs> it, we talked about Star Trek earlier. I will always love Star Trek, but Star Trek has a need to label and to quantify almost everything that it does. So there are multiple Star Trek source books. Uh, there are the blueprints and plans of the USS Enterprise, which go down to the tiniest of minutia, even showing like where the bathrooms are on the bridge. <laughs> and yeah, you get to a point where you you have a lack of wonder in Star Trek. Yeah, because everything is so well delineated. And while that's fine for Star Trek, we definitely don't want everything to be like Star Trek. And that's really what. Uh, disturbed a lot of people about the Star Wars prequels. That thing about the midichlorians, it's like, well, you're taking the the wonder, the mysteriousness out of it and replacing it with this technobabble pseudoscience. Yeah. You've turned the force that binds the galaxy together and you've reduced it to a number count. Mm -hmm. Because he says he is a midichlorian count of 2,000. We don't really need to know the number. 9 million, whatever. I don't care. But it Power leaves. level's over 9,000. Thank you. That's what I was going for. <laughs> and it reduces it to a rating, which means, oh, he's got a midi-chlorian of 100. Well, he's got one of 250. Well, he has one of over 9,000. He's gone super Jedi. <laughs> and it makes it good for a source book, but it takes the wonder out of the experience. And we tend to associate that feeling of wonder with more fantasy rather than science fiction. But I think it's equally important in sci-fi to say we can see a little ways into the future, but we only see it dimly. We don't know what the Tannhauser Gate is. We don't have any clue what sea beams are. And one of these instances takes place off the shoulder of Orion. Is Orion a code name for a place on Earth? Is he talking about the actual constellation Orion? It's hinted that there is interstellar travel because you see on the big blimp... Apply today. Enjoy one of the outbound colonies. Yeah, and getting back to these themes that show up in Roy's speech, it only seems like at the very end that he really gets what Tyrell's message was about. Like it, it seemed like none of that was good enough for him, and especially as it angers him and he destroys Tyrell. I mean, he crushes the guy's head. It is an ultimate rejection 
of this message of a better quality of life. And one of the reasons why I found that particularly interesting is because I, I've been spending some more time in the preaching paths that I've had in the book of John and also with Luke 15. Yeah, I know it's weird. Blade Runner getting tied to scripture, but it, <laughs> buckle your seatbelt, buddies. This is happening. There is a dual quality in the Johannine literature when, depending on your translation, of life everlasting or life infinitely or life more abundantly. Usually we think of that in, in the pews as, oh, he's talking about after you die, you get more life added on. Like, who doesn't want that? In the Johannine literature, there is a subtle double nuance that the relationship with God here on earth is life more abundantly. Mm-hmm. That there is a an infinite quality of life that describes a relationship with the Father. That living the Christian life is not getting your reward at the end, as the one we describe as the prodigal son tries to do here and now, but the older brother had the opportunity to live within you know, the household of the father in this abundant life setting. And I found that to be an interesting parallel when Roy wants something that in a way he already has. He wants more life. It's like, dude, you're missing the point. You've got more life. And he only realizes that he has this more life as he's about to die. Right. In his pursuit of it, he wasted what he had. I think that's what makes him an interesting, tragic villain. I mean, he had the opportunity to to live as a wonderful hero who beheld these things. And yeah, it's it's going to get snuffed out when you're gone. I feel you, Roy. This this happens. Your experience on Earth dies with you. That is the existential plight of us all. There is an interesting little grace note of hope in the end of that scene, though. Because he's got that dove in his hand, and it's kind of inexplicable where the dove came from. I mean, it just come it just kind of appears, appears out of nowhere, yeah. and he dies and releases it, and it flies off into the sky. And I kind of took that as kind of a heavy-handed metaphor of the dove. Yes, is he's dead, but something goes on, something okay. persists. I kind of viewed it as could have been interpreted a couple of different ways. Something goes on; the world is going to continue. Maybe like the dove, he had Deckard literally in the palm of his hand, and he lets both go. And uh, Or it could have been seen as his soul, if he had one, being released from his body. I don't know. I was analyzing it, and parts of the movie got trippy for me mentally because, as I told you guys earlier, I haven't mentioned on the podcast, a lot of sickness has been going through my house, a stomach bug. And so when I finally did get a chance to sit down and watch this movie— I was doing it with a near 100-degree fever. And let me tell you, this is not a movie you want to watch while having a fever. (laughs) Stuff got trippy, but it was a moment I had to pause while I tried to read as much into that as I could. And to some degree, the fact that he saved Deckard, at this point, Deckard is the only person in the universe, well, that we're aware of, that knows who Roy is and what he was about. And if he had killed Deckard, then his own death essentially becomes meaningless. Nobody remembers him. All of those experiences he had, are they're just gone. But by saving this Blade Runner, by giving him the speech, then something of him continues on in the world. You know, Deckard might tell a story about him later, and he lives. 
And then the question becomes, well, but for how long? Is Deckard the replicant or is he the human Blade Runner? Which in different versions of the film have different implications. Let's forget that we have a sequel that came out that seems to answer that question definitively. I mean, Deckard <laughs> have a long life. It's not very definitive. Yeah. <laughs> I have not seen Blade Runner. Is it Blade Runner 2049? 2049. I have not seen it yet, but... Now that I've seen the first one, I plan on watching the second one soon. You'll watch it three times in the first playthrough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it had the opposite problem of this one, where in the original Blade Runner, we didn't get told quite enough to understand. Mm -hmm. In the sequel, we get told things several times just to make sure we understand. Uh, who directed the sequel? Was it Ridley Scott again or was it someone else? It was somebody else, uh, Villa, Villeneuve, I don't know how to pronounce his name. You know, in moments like that, I'm reminded of a line from The Thrilling Adventure Hour, an episode with Frank and Sadie Doyle and this young vampire of a trio of vampires they were fighting. Frank and Sadie clink their glasses together, as they do several times, and the vampire was saying, they have this unbreakable bond together, and it seems as if clinking their glasses together is a symbol of their often unspoken but totally requited love for each other. And there's a pause, and Sadie Doyle goes, Dear, never speak the subtext out loud. Where were you raised? A barn? <laughs> That's actually where our family picked up the line modified to don't make the subtext text. Yes. I just like how she equates... You know, baking the subtext text to being raised in a barn. <laughs> there was so much more I wanted to talk about. I lost my notes. Darn it. Um, I've got mine in front of me. And some people might be thinking that in the last two movies they reviewed that I've been overly critical of them. And I try not to be. In this movie, there was a lot that I liked. Some things I didn't like. It had some pacing issues. Uh, mm -hmm. Some scenes were really, really drawn out. Unnecessarily so. All right. You've raised tension. You've done the scene well. There's no need for it to continue for an extra 30, 40 seconds. Yeah, it, the uh, whole scene in the strip club would went on way too long. Agreed. And it wasn't going anywhere. Honestly, I thought that the good portion of the scene where Roy and the puppet maker, whose name I just forgot. Um, J.F. Sebastian. Sebastian, yes. Where they were in the elevator together, uh, some parts were good. It sets the scene for how... They're able to get up to Tyrell's bedroom, but I thought it was very drawn out. See, I, I thought that was tense because, I mean, you have somebody who we've been told that he's killed a ship full of people. He roughed up Chu, the eye maker, I mean, implying that he, however, whatever state he left Chu in, we've not actually seen him kill anybody on screen, but we get the impression this is a dangerous dude that he's just hanging out in an elevator with. I don't know. I felt that as tension. That's just my experience, though. Feel free to have a different one. <laughs> but one scene that I thought he nailed was the chase scene, where Decker was chasing after the dancer replicant with the snake. Mm. Um, once again, I thought that he really nailed the feeling of an overcrowded megacity. There were several times where that showed Decker going down the street, and I could feel my anxiety levels rise mm -hmm. of being in a city like that. I don't have claustrophobia and I don't get that nervous around large groups of people like others I know. 
But <laughs> in that setting, I could imagine myself being there, and it was I was getting very anxious. And the chase scene through the crowd, through the traffic and the people, I found wonderful. The tension was real. I felt it. The desperation of him. He's looking through buses and cars and down alleyways and staircases trying to find her. And by pure luck, it's pure luck that he catches sight of her again. When she got away from him in the first place, I'm like, well, he's, he's not going to find her. I don't care if he's a highly decorated police officer, blade runner. But with that many people and she's got a head start and she's booking it like she is, he ain't finding her. But for the sake of the story and the plot, he does. Guns are down. I thought the whole scene was wonderful. It wasn't drawn out one second longer than it needed to. Well, if we're going to mention some scenes that we did not like, I, I'm just going to say it. The I don't want to call it the love scene, like the preamble to the sex scene mm -hmm. really made me so super uncomfortable no i think if i had known what it was going to be like i would have skipped it completely i'm like no this is a, to put it in a word this is a way too rapey uh yeah, yeah. and this is the thing it's like she tries to leave he slams the door she tries to leave again he slams the door and he says to her like gives her the words like tell me to, to kiss you or, or something like that and one of the things that terrified me is that there is some writer writing this thinking that this is sexy or some director who thinks this is sexy what experiences are you pulling from that this fiction is cool well, and that, that just terrifies me i'm just amazed that it got you, you could not put that up on the screen today absolutely it not. should not actually should not have been on the screen then yeah at all but someone had to write it someone had to accept it the director had to, to direct it and the actor and actresses had to do it so i'm like why didn't at some point someone go, um, can we maybe make a change to this? I'm going to offer a maybe controversial, slightly different viewpoint on it. Not that it's not a rapey scene and not that everything that you're seeing there is not there because it absolutely is. But is it intended to show us something about Deckard, his personality, the flaws in his character? I never took it as this scene is meant to be sexy because it really isn't. I mean, they're clearly not having a problem showing nudity. So the fact that it cuts out before anything actually starts says to me that this wasn't a sex scene. This was a scene telling us, showing us some conflict in Deckard's character. Um, we have a problematic person on the screen. Mm -hmm. I think there's no controversy in you saying this reveals something extremely problematic in the character. So perhaps the intent was different than I had I had perceived, but I, yeah, I just got caught up in my own feelings of, oh. The more I thought about it, why did they go ahead with this scene? And Brian, you mentioned the character of Decker, and I think that one reason why they went in the direction that they did was that even though there are several moments that sees Decker connecting with Rachel, he doesn't see her as a person. Exactly. Mm. He doesn't see her. Yeah. She's she's not human. He may have been polite. He may have had moments of kindness even. But on a deep psychological level, she is not a human being. She is an object. And not as in how men will treat some women as objects. No, her physical being is artificial. Was created in a lab. And he's been a Blade Runner for, I don't know how long. But he's brought in 
on this case after he's retired because he's one of the best. So he's probably had to put down an untold number of replicants, and that's how he sees them. He doesn't he's see, not he tries to see them anyway. Good point. How he tries to see them, and I think that they're trying to show that he doesn't see her as someone worthy of romantic or tender love. At that moment, she's there to serve a need. And he perceives it as a possessing sort of, I don't want to even call it love, affection, uh, some sort of possessing sort of feeling yeah. projecting onto her. Yeah. He stops her yeah. from leaving. He gives her the words to say, makes her repeat it until she starts saying it on her own. Uh, I mean, and I guess that gets into another aspect of his view of the replicants in that you know, he's perhaps in this reading not able to see a humanity that is reflected back at him. I mean, Roy's struggle is human. His revelations are human. Even if he is technically not human, there is so much humanity packed into those short years. And Deckert is unable to see the miracle that is being manifest before him, perhaps. I don't know. I'm spitballing that one. One thing that I did find interesting was someone who has spent his life hunting down tracking and eliminating replicants and this was before the the sleep together scene he the first time she's in his apartment he's really relaxed he's acting really easy going around a replicant considering what he's spent his life doing to the point where he even falls asleep on the couch with one sitting right there well and he's addressed that earlier he says if the replicant is functioning correctly it's not my problem it's a machine doing what it's supposed to do yep good point and for all he knows, she's a machine doing exactly what she's supposed to do. She can be absolutely trusted because she hasn't shown that emotional instability. She hasn't shown any signs of going off the rails. It isn't until she comes back and is, well, Bryant has told him that she's now a target, and that changes the way he's looking at her. Speaking of that scene, I've never been a huge Sean Young fan. I'm just not really a fan of how she acts. Mm-hmm. But that scene where they're having the discussion of her memories about the picture of her mother, I thought was fantastic. I mean, the emotion that she so minutely displayed on her face, you know, someone who's trying to be stoic and is trying to, to be reserved and to keep it all inside. The little ticks, the little moments you saw on her face as she was ready to prove him wrong I know what he told you, but I'm a person. Here's a picture to prove it. I knew my mother. And that's all been destroyed in just a few questions from him. I mean, you're feeling everything that she's feeling as her entire half-life has been turned upside down. Yeah, I don't think I've seen her in a whole lot other than Blade Runner. So I don't really have a baseline for her acting skill. And speaking of, we've talked about Decker and more about are they replicants, are they not? Let's, uh, let's take a moment and talk about Edward James Olmos. <laughs> and the character Gaff, who I'm completely convinced that they let him dress himself for this movie. <laughs> Could be. Here's the key to wardrobe. Have fun. That's exactly what I was thinking. So what do you think is the deal with Gaff? He starts off speaking the street patois. Deckard pretends not to be able to understand him. But then at the end of the movie, he reveals uh, he speaks English just fine. What do you think was his motivation for that? I think his primary motivation was to close the act. <laughs> because like some type of 
Shakespearean envoy. He seems to only show up at the beginning or the end of an act, as if to herald the ending of one sequence and to bring forth the beginning of another. <laughs> so you're going with continuity error? <laughs> I'm just still dazzling. and delivery, boy. <laughs> Amazon will send anything these days. <laughs> I'm, I'm still just in awe of his costume. <laughs> <laughs> and how good of a Blade Runner can he really be if he's on a cane? I know I couldn't go chasing after robots on a cane. Does it ever actually show him walking on the cane, though, or is he just carrying around? Maybe it's just an affectation. Yeah. Either that or he figures it's, it's harder to outrun a bullet. Maybe he <laughs> maybe he dressed that way so that he could carry a cane non-ironically. Ah. The only way I can carry a cane is if I dress like the pimp star Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> See, that joke works on a couple of different levels. Yes. Right. Um, I did want to ask or explore a little bit about Rachel herself, particularly in regards to that scene we just talked about. She's just found out I'm an artificial person. Bryant has said to Deckard that she's a target, so presumably she can't go back to Tyrell. Mm. Don't know where she went when she left his apartment. Don't know where she would have gone when she tried to leave before. But I think that may be why she was still there when he came back. Though, considering that it is Megapolis, Los Angeles, it could have taken her all that time just to walk two blocks. <laughs> she just That's did a Duncan run. Yeah. Well, let me ask one final question of you guys. Sure. Do you think Decker is a replicant? I'm going to come down with a hard, definitive, maybe? <laughs> let's not I even still think he's not. Let's not even take into account the sequel. Let's not even think about it. As far as we're concerned, it was never made. I don't want him to be. You know what? That's where I'm going to land. I don't want him to be. I'm not saying that he isn't, but I want my lens to be a real, you know, to be a real boy. You know, I, I don't want Pinocchio. I want, I want the flesh and blood, despite the fact that it goes against the entire point of this whole twice bright life thing that they're, that they're presenting, which I think is one of the reasons why the movie is unsettling to me. I'm going to go with you. I don't want him to be because no one in this movie is really whom they seem to be, which I think is one of the underlying themes. Deckard may or may not be a replicant. Gaff may or may not be from this solar system. <laughs> um, and I'll just spend a second on this, but the four replicants, we're told who they are in his briefing. We've got the heavy lifter, uh, Leon Kowalski, the guy who can lift like four tons. The the soldier was named Zora. We've got the pleasure bot, Pris. And finally, super soldier, Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, U.S. Marine, Captain America level, all rolled into one, Roy Batty. But then these characters revealed none of them act like how we perceive them to originally be. For being someone who is just supposed to be purely construction for manual labor, Kowalski kills effortlessly and without remorse, without a second thought. Let me tell you about my mother. Boom! Yeah. And violence comes very easy to him. The character of Zora, I forget how she was described. Um, I think she was an assassin. Okay, she was an assassin. Okay, she was the one playing the part of the stripper. And then you have Pris, the one who was programmed as a pleasure bot. Basic pleasure bot, yeah. And honestly, the more I thought about certain scenes, 
the more I saw her as being the brains of the operation. Interesting. Well, she was certainly the social manipulator. Yes. There was also a scene where Roy has come to Sebastian's home. And she's like, oh, this is my friend Roy. And Sebastian, you know, trying to get away from the awkwardness, says, I'll go make breakfast. And when Roy conveys to her that the others are dead, true, there's sadness. And I thought he displayed that in a way of someone... This is a person who certain emotions to him are foreign and brand new, and he's dealing with them almost like a child would. Mm -hmm. And that moment seemed very childlike to me, but I read into it that he was almost subservient for just a moment in his language and in his intonations of his voice. He tells her that they're dead, and she smiles and says, we'll have to be smarter. And I could totally picture she was the one who thought about, let's steal the um, the ship. Leon, go murder a bunch of people. <laughs> we'll get to Earth, and we'll begin plotting a way to get to Tyrell. The one that we see f- at the front the most is Roy Batty, the super soldier. But, and we've talked about this earlier, he was only responsible, directly responsible, that we definitively know of a very small number of deaths. Yeah, he only killed a few people. Yeah, well, when compared to one of his compatriots. Yeah, we don't know how many of those 26 on the shuttle were Jorah and or Leon. Yeah. I will say he's a very tactical type of character, which goes with being a soldier. He did kill Sebastian for absolutely no reason whatsoever. That's true. I hadn't considered Pris as the the leader, but it kind of does make sense with her skill set, her ability to navigate the so-called normal people that she might be calling the shots on how to get what they want. Roy might be the strategist, the guy actually getting things done, but she might be setting policy. That's very possible. So in conclusion, I think that if you're a science fiction fantasy movie fan, this is a movie, if you have not seen it yet, you need to. At least one time. More if you feel up for it. What do you guys think? Well, it's always been one of my favorites, so yeah. (laughs) There you go. Well, I think that will wrap it up for Blade Runner. And that will also wrap up the first three movies that we talked about discussing when we started the whole Film Club project. And uh, stay tuned, friends, especially on the Facebook page. Very soon, we'll discuss which ones that we want to take a look at next, and you can join along with us. And I think that that will take us to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, what have you got for us? Well, at the Geek at Arms Zombie Strategies Lab, we've had some very successful tests in repelling zombies. We have a lab? The strategy, yeah. I mean, where do you think that we were testing the beekeeper suit? Jeez, come on. I mean, it's my basement, but still, you know, hey, it's just, we don't call it a basement. We call it a lab. The strategy this time is to think untasty thoughts. That's right. <laughs> the contents of your brain has a great deal to do with whether or not zombies will actually eat them. And during our tests, we found that the right cocktail of binge-watching season two of Sex in the City, reading and rereading the Waterloo scene in Les Miserables over and over and over again, <laughs> and listening to Kids Bop Volume 7 backwards on repeat is just like Deet to the undead. Unfortunately, 37% of the test subjects wound up eating their own brains in a desperate attempt to escape the study. That never occurred to me. The fewer brain cells you have, 
the less appetizing you are to the undead. You know, once you get kids bought backwards stuck in your head, they're like, uh, 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 and they just wander away. Hmm. So reality television is actually a brilliant plan to stave off the zombie apocalypse? <laughs> well, we could run a few episodes of that to the remaining surviving test subjects. Oh, so I, they not this makes me scared for the future. Because if your <laughs> Those test, are our choices. If your testing proves correct, that means it's going to be up to the cast of the Jersey Shore to rebuild society. <laughs> I think I'm going to cast a vote for the zombies rebuilding the society on that one. <laughs> well, one of your plans earlier was if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think that will wrap up this episode. I want to thank everyone for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com and at facebook.com slash geekatarms. Uh, Mike, what is that wonderfully named Twitter feed again? It is at ArmsGeek, because I pretend I lift. <laughs> and from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.